I confess that I had somewhat of a fascination with daredevils when I was younger. Maybe I thought they were courageous. My favorite daredevil was Evil Knievel. He attempted many jumps through the years, be it over the fountains of Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas, or 15 Ford Mustangs, or 19 cars, or 13 Pepsi delivery trucks, or 50 stacked cars, or 13 Greyhound buses, or a tank full of sharks. And of course, there's the ever-famous Snake River Canyon jump. Now, some jumps were successful, some weren't. But successful or not, America was entranced with Evil Knievel, from movies to TV specials to the over $300 million grossed by Evil Knievel toys. And I was entranced, too. The scar on my right cheek is evidence, the result of a failed landing after having used a huge root from an oak tree in our driveway to become airborne on my bike. In an interview near the end of his life, Evil Knievel said, you can't ask a guy like me why I performed. I really wanted to fly through the air. I was a daredevil, a performer. I loved the thrill, the money, the whole macho thing. All those things made me Evil Knievel. Now, I can't be sure that was all that was going on in Evil Knievel's mind when he made those jumps. People tend to be more complicated than that. But somewhere along the way, courage came to take on a very different face for me than that of Evil Knievel. Courage is no longer the daredevil attitude that comes from an inadequate assessment of the risks or an undervaluing of life or the desire for notoriety. Instead, true courage is always born out of a recognition of one's own vulnerability. One of the faces that now speak to me of courage is that of Martin Luther King, Jr., especially Dr. King's face as it was the night of January 27, 1956. It was a few days into the struggle for freedom in Montgomery, and Dr. King began to get telephone calls threatening his life and the lives of his family. He said that he took these threats in a strong manner until one night at midnight when he received a call. The voice on the other end called him a name and then said, We are tired of your mess now. If you're not out of this town in three days, we're going to blow your brains out and blow up your house. It wasn't the first time Dr. King had heard these things, but that night he couldn't shake it off. He couldn't go back to sleep. He went to the kitchen and made some coffee. He tried to think of all the philosophical and theological reasons he learned in school for the evil that exists in the world, but the answers didn't come. He sat at the table thinking about the one-month-old daughter that he loved and the wife that he loved. He said he got to the point that he couldn't take it anymore. Something said to him that he had to call on that something that his daddy used to tell him about, quote, that power who can make a way out of no way. King said, I discovered then that religion had to become real to me and I had to know God for myself. He bowed and prayed. God, I'm down here trying to do what's right. I think this is right. I think the cause is right. But I have to admit I'm weak right now. I'm faltering and I'm losing courage. At that moment he heard an inner voice saying, Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. And I will be with you even until the end of the world. It's been said that courage is not the absence of fear but rather the judgment that something else is more important. 
In that case, Martin Luther King Jr. was very courageous. His desire for justice, his compassion for those who suffered, and his faith in God were all stronger than the fear he felt that night. And I'm reminded of him when I think about the incredible courage shown by Jesus in today's Gospel passage. The lectionary has us read Matthew's story of the feeding of the 5,000 as an event unto itself. But we lose something of what's going on here if we don't look at the few verses that come before it. If we don't begin with what prompted Jesus to withdraw to a deserted place to begin with. Just before today's reading, we hear about the death of John the Baptist. It had all started when John the Baptist condemned the relationship between the ruler Herod and his partner Herodias as being unlawful. The Bible calls Herodias the wife of Herod's brother Philip. Some scholars say that Herod was actually Herodias' half-uncle. Whatever was the case, John the Baptist spoke against the relationship and it landed him in prison. But Herod was afraid to kill John because some of the Jewish people viewed John as a prophet. During a banquet celebrating Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced so beautifully that Herod vowed to give her whatever she asked for. On the recommendation of her mother Herodias, the daughter asked for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. John was beheaded, his head placed on a platter and brought to the girl who then gave it to her mother. After burying the body, John's disciples went and told Jesus what had happened. Matthew writes that when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. Matthew doesn't spell out exactly why Jesus needed to be by himself. Having just heard of the death of John the Baptist, did Jesus need to grieve? Was he scared? Did he need to talk to God? At that moment, did the risk he faced become incredibly vivid and real to him? If Jesus as a human being felt fear, and I can't imagine that he didn't at times, well then fear didn't have the last word. Compassion did. When Jesus came ashore, a great crowd met him. And when Jesus saw this huge crowd of people, Scripture tells us that he had compassion for them, and he began to cure those who were sick. Hours later, the people became hungry, and the disciples realized there wasn't enough food to eat. Should they send the people away? Instead, in an action reminiscent of the Last Supper and our Eucharist, Jesus took five loaves of bread and two fish, blessed them, broke them, and gave them to the disciples to give to the people. All ate and were filled with 12 baskets of crumbs left over. While Herod's birthday banquet smacks of decadence, power, elitism, and retaliation, Jesus holds a different kind of feast, one where all are welcome, including peasants, the lame, the sick, those who are hungry both physically and spiritually, and all are filled. Richard Rohr has said that the best criticism of a current system is to do something new, to do things in an entirely different way. Well, Jesus' whole life reveals a new way of being in the world, one that trusts abundance and shows compassion for those who are forgotten. Surely after witnessing what had happened to John the Baptist, 
and knowing that the message he himself proclaimed would also step on the toes of socially and politically prominent people, Jesus must have known what lay ahead for him most likely. But fear didn't have the final word. Fueled by compassion and sustained by faith, Jesus found the courage to act anyway. And in that act, the abundance of God in which he trusted so much was made real, both for himself and for the crowds gathered there. Well, we here are not usually scared that we will be killed by political powers. But we are marinated in an atmosphere of scarcity and fear just by virtue of the culture in which we live. It appears that as we grow in wealth as a nation and individuals, instead of becoming more generous to those who are poor or hungry or alone, we hold more tightly to what we have. Maybe we've heard about God's world of abundance, and in theory we'd love to give it a try. But we'd rather keep what we have and know than risk losing it for what we want so deeply in our soul. And so we continue to take part in a culture of fear and scarcity. So what would it take for us to do things in a new way? If we look at Martin Luther King Jr. and at today's gospel, it seems the answer is compassion for those who suffer and faith that God is a God of abundance who wants what's best for all people. Even when we have faith, though, it's usually compassion that has a way of pulling us out of ourselves and out of our fears, enough so that we can act. And I want to say that compassion doesn't have to only be directed towards others. It's okay to have compassion for ourselves, too. There are many times that moving from fear to action is necessary for us to be healed, to be made whole, to experience the abundant grace of God. Real life is full of actions that take courage. Entering into another relationship even after we've been hurt, the first day of a job with all of its unknowns, putting one foot in front of the other when we're depressed, answering a call to discipleship even though we see ourselves as anything but worthy and capable. If God is a God who provides enough for all people, Sometimes our call is to have compassion for ourselves, too. So this morning, these are the questions I want to ask. What are your deepest fears, the risks you're too afraid to take, the insecurities and worries that keep you from acting? How are these fears keeping you from living a life that not only proclaims a trust in God's abundance, but that shares that abundance with those around you? How are these fears keeping you from experiencing that abundance in your own life? And can compassion and faith bridge the gap between paralyzing fear and action? In the Eucharist, can we become the body of Christ for the life of the world, the bread for the world?